This is episode 55 of This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. This episode is sponsored by the Nazarene Student Center at the University of Oklahoma. Committed to sharing Christ's love with the students of OU, the OUNSC is meeting them wherever they are. Visit OUNSC.org or search on social media for at the OUNSC. Today on the podcast, we have Dane Robinson, pastor of Holdenville Church of the Nazarene in Holdenville, Oklahoma. And stay tuned to the end of the episode where we'll hear from our voicemail about your Nazarene life. Thanks for all you do for young pastors, and thanks for tuning in. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bowler-Jack, and I'm here with my guest, Dane Robinson. He's the pastor of Holdenville Church of the Nazarene in Holdenville, Oklahoma. Welcome to the show. Hi, Britt. So the first question I ask everyone is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? How did I end up in the Church of the Nazarene? I guess, well, I had a great-grandfather named John Wesley Robinson. I had a great-uncle named Buddy Robinson. I had a grandpa who was a Nazarene pastor. My parents met in the singles class that was actually where in my parsonage of my den in my parsonage oh wow and then i became the pastor of that church and we merged that church with my grandpa's i guess you could say i've been here since uh conception i guess (laughs) Um, i've been here since day one Uh, i was talking recently to somebody about you are there's sometimes we call it a profession of faith you can either join the church or there's some people that were born in Nazarene, mm. and it's it's not really the same thing. I mean, the the born in Nazarene is more like a local thing. That's a tradition thing. That's a family thing. Yeah. And then there came a time when I became a Nazarene by what I believed, mm. and that's a different thing. I think uh, I'm getting to a whole lot of stuff. But that's how I became a Nazarene. It's kind of like the way we think of baptisms. You know, we do baptisms for young children and babies and things, and people don't really understand that. And I always tell people, well, it's, they're identifying with the local body. They're mm. saying, I'm part of this group. I belong here. And then there comes a time, I'll even, we don't re-baptize people, but I think John does like a remembrance of baptism. Yep. We kind of we do that sort of thing when they believe and they want to be identified not just with the local body, but with the body of Christ. And they're mm. saying, I'm now choosing to follow the ways of Christ. So uh, I don't remember even now what you asked me, but that's how, I became, <laughs> that's how I became a member of the Church of the Nazarene. No, I love it. I love it. And I, I may end up backtracking to the, the yeah. second piece of your question, but let me ask you the next question. We'll see if we get there. Sure. Tell us the story of your call to ministry. How did you end up being a pastor? Oh, wow. Um, it's it's uh, I'm learning that you... We really project our own feelings onto history as we look back, because as I look back, I can see how God was preparing me probably from the time I was, from the time I can remember. Mm. Like the first, the first real memory I have of being in a household with my family, I was probably around two or three, I don't know, but the conscious memory I have is my mom kneeling in prayer at an old blue crush couch. And I remember it had that, oh, she still has the Afghan and everything. And I remember seeing that was kind of my life growing up. So let me backtrack before I was even born. My grandpa was an old drunk, World War II vet, drove a tank, just a rough and tumble guy. His nickname was Roughhouse. 
And my dad lived with his grandparents because he was a rough guy. And uh, but he and my grandma one night, or my my dad's grandparents took him here to the Nazarene Church his whole life. And um, anyway, he got saved long before my grandparents did. And uh, he was the mayor here, and and he was on the city council when he was like 21. Mm. And uh, so he had a great life. But somewhere around 50s, in the mid 50s, I guess. They were building a parsonage here and then fellowship hall here at this church. And they came and asked my grandpa to help them. And he did. And he came and helped them. And he said, I wanted to come show those old guys what a, what a young boy could really do. And he said, I'd go down there and those guys would outwork me day and night. Hmm. And he said, they finally, at the end of all this, they invited me to their revival to celebrate the buildings and, and all this. And they had a revival. And he said, I was sitting in that pew. I'm going to cry a lot, by Aww, the way. okay. <laughs> uh, he said, I was sitting in that pew, and he said it was like somebody grabbed me by the shirt collar mm. and dragged me down to the altar. And he said, and he said, and I looked back, and he said, and my wife followed me. Mm. And he said, we knelt there, and we gave our lives to the Lord. And he said, I drove home, and he, he had an old, uh, uh, they had an old laundry service back then, and he had an old panel truck. And he said, I pulled in that old driveway in that old panel truck, and he said, bottle of wine rolled out from underneath the, the seat and he said I picked up that wine and I dumped it out in the driveway and he said I went inside and, and there was a pack of cigarettes in my front shirt pocket and he said I took that pack of cigarettes out and I threw them in the trash can and he said never again he said I never drank and never smoked and fast forward to around 1980 my parents met in this singles class it was the singles class I love those by the way <laughs> this is my favorite thing <laughs> Never mind. Anyway, uh, uh, they met. It's right here. It's like to the left of me, full of laundry that you cannot see. But anyway, it's like right here. Uh, My parents met and they got married in 1980. Right around that time, my grandpa sensed a call to preach Mm. and told the church. And the district was going to close the Woka Church of the Nazarene, which is about seven miles away from Holdenville, where we live. And so they were going to close it. And the the district advisory board had already chosen to close it and he said no let me take it i want to try there were three elderly sisters left the farmer sisters that was all that was left Um, my grandpa went to go get the keys from them and they wouldn't give them to him (laughs) they had to to call the district superintendent anyway they gave him the keys and for 27 years almost my well my entire adult life or a childhood and adult life my grandpa was my pastor and and we went over there my mom was my sunday school teacher every grade (laughs) it was like never always had the same one and uh so we went our whole lives and that church grew from uh, three to around at its heyday about 60 to 70 people and we just had it was our it was our life um i i don't get into all the personal stuff because we're talking about a call to ministry here but I spent a lot, my first, from like age 15 to 23, I was highly addicted to meth. Mm-hmm. I was off doing my own thing and way lost into drugs, not doing anything at all for the Lord. And turns out you can't live a life like that very long. Yeah. <laughs> and so things came crashing to an end and God brought them to an end and I moved back home. I walked into that little church after, I don't know, five years of being gone. And they just welcomed me. Then you know, I always tell this in my church: not one person ever asked me where I had been, what I had done, why I was back. They knew mm-hmm. something was wrong, and they knew I was broken and lost. I didn't even have a nice shirt to wear. 
and nobody ever said a word. Hmm. They said, we are so glad that you're here. And you're talking about people that couldn't possibly understand what I had done. Hmm. And they didn't care about track marks in my arm. I mean, it's just uh, just little things. Anyway, yeah. they welcomed me back. And it was in that, it was during that time where God really spoke to me and showed me that he'd been preparing me for something. And I'll tell you what I thought it was. I thought that it was to take over my grandpa's church. Mm. I really did. I knew he wanted me to preach, but I didn't know. Oh, gosh, I would have never dreamed it would have been in Holdenville. That's where I lived. <laughs> <You know? laughs> There's an old phrase where you, you, well, never mind, I won't use it on, never mind, not on a podcast. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, you don't, you, it was away from here. Yeah. I, I thought I was going to be in a town at least where people didn't know me that well mm. and know my past. Yeah. Because that was... That was going to be a huge deal. And so uh, it was over there. And I told my grandpa that Sunday, I, first of all, I, I felt the call to preach. I told my DS first. I called Terry. He had been there about a year. And I called Terry and he said, that is so great. And I said, Terry, I said, Doc, what do you, what do we do? And he said, you announce it to your church. You tell your pastor. So it was my grandpa. He said, I know, but you still, you tell your pastor. And yeah. so I did. And my pastor's response was, Buddy, that is so great. He said, you start preaching for me twice a month. <laughs> and, I was, <laughs> and I was terrified. And so, uh, and then he calls me that week and he says, uh, I have not, by the way, had one class or one hour. No, I knew nothing. I was barely sober, not even a year. Yeah. And he says, uh, he says, uh, he calls me one day and says, son, I'm going to get you in the funeral business. And I was like, the funeral business? This is how he talked. And I said, uh, the funeral business? He said, Yeah. And we, he was, he was Holdenville. I know he pastored and we woke up, but he was Holdenville's town pastor. Mm. He, if you didn't have a church or a pastor, Meredith was your pastor. Mm. And he did thousands of funerals over the 30 years that he was here. I could not even put a number on it. There, uh, just, if you didn't have a church, that's who you went to. Yeah. Everybody knew Meredith and Gertrude. Mm -hmm. Their door. I always tell people this. We always talk about going to our neighbors and being neighborly to our neighbors. People came. People are my grandparents' neighbors came to them. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of people they were. Every neighbor they ever had would always come over for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And that's just they drew people to them. And it didn't matter if you were a Christian or a, they didn't care. Yeah. You were welcome inside. And uh, so whenever I called, was called to preach, I inherited not just a church really, or I didn't take over a church. I was inheriting a ministry. Mm. Um, so I think it was uh, Terry Toller said one time that you can't, a pastor can't determine the size of his church, but he can determine the size of his ministry. Mm. That was That was kind of my grandpa. And so I inherited not just that, that but I inherited that view of, of community. My heart is here. My soul is here. So what, long story even longer, we, we, uh, we took that. We woke a church, and uh, we were gonna, I was going to take over and go to school. I was getting married. I was excited. Laura was excited. I was going to go and get my classes done. And all of a sudden, my grandpa's going to retire. We know all this. And then all of a sudden, the guy in Holdenville, who's been here close to 20 years, announces that he's going to retire at the same assembly that my grandpa is. Oh, wow. And I mean, it was almost like, I, I, it was probably somebody like my mom had to say it out loud. 
well, what if, you know, like, what if you were pastor here? Because we all lived in Holdenville. Hmm. And I was, all the, it wasn't probably a day before we're all talking about putting these two things together. Everybody virtually that went to Ewoka Church lived in Holdenville. Oh. And so we were just, all these things. And so I look back now and think it was all designed. You can see God doing all this. And then the DS calls me one day. I had been married. He did my wedding, too. And he calls me, I don't know, a few weeks after I've been married. We're living in a little apartment, not making it month to month. We have no money, no job. <laughs> you know, I'm working for my parents. And he gets a call. He says, what if you took? He said, I want you to pray, said, Here, I want you to pray about something. If a DS ever tells you to pray about something, just run. Just run. <laughs> uh, but I said, uh, what? Uh, he said, what if? what if you and Laura were pastor at there at the Holdenville church? Mm. And I said, doc, I don't have an education. I have no experience. I said, I don't even have a resume. Mm. And he said, I didn't ask you had a resume. I just want you to pray about it. And we did. Mm. We prayed about it, but it was not that when he said that to me, it was not only like I thought that I, it's not like I was, it was almost like I was anticipating that call. I was expecting it to come. I knew this is what God wanted for me. Mm. And I look back on that now. I always thought it was like the common sense. Well, of course, that's what you would do. And I look back now and I think that is the stupidest, most insane thing. <laughs> that anybody, I was not even barely married, dragging this girl who'd been out of high school two weeks. Wow. And we're, we're going to move into a parsonage. And this is what I'm going to do. I loved her. I didn't want to do that to her. So, <laughs> but uh, it made the most sense to both of us. Yeah. And we drove that night. He interviewed. We interviewed. Was not even the night of the interview. Uh, Terry called me. Dr. Rowland called me and said, I'm sitting here with the church board. And he said, uh, or he said, I was out. He was outside the door. And he said, I met with them. And, uh, I submitted them three resumes in your name because I wasn't kidding. I didn't have a resume. Yeah. <laughs> and so he gave them three resumes in my name. And over two different meetings, they both said, and one, one of our members named Mark Brandon, uh, he said, Mark kept saying, we don't want to see any other resumes. We want to talk to Nate. Because hmm. they knew me. We were, we were family. We were friends. And yeah. um, so uh, Terry steps outside and he says, they really want to talk to you. He said, when's a good time? And I said, what about now? And he said, uh, let me ask him. So he sticks his head in the door. He says, he wants to know if we can meet now. And they said, sure. And he gets back and he says, they said, that'd be good. Laura and I put on the nicest clothes we could find. And we get in my little Ford Focus and we drive over here. It's pouring down, right? Oh, oh I haven't told this story in a very long time. Anyway, uh, we, we pulled into this. There's a, a drainage thing by the church and I'm going too fast. And the water kind of shot up over the windshield. And we were like, ah, you know, anyway, we pulled in the parking lot. And she says, <laughs> she looked at me. She said, I'm scared. <laughs> and I said, I am too. And we prayed. But it, was, it wasn't that we were scared of what they were going to say. We were scared that we knew what was about to happen. And we knew what God was going to do. Hmm. And just opened up. Um, I accepted that job with no education and no hours of experience. I had my wife, who is the strength of my relationship. If I don't say it throughout any of this, she is our foundation. She's our rock. She doesn't just keep the household going. She keeps everything going. Um, 
She's kind of the stability. I'm a little bit scatterbrained right now. I don't even remember what question was asked, but <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we interviewed that night and, uh, we took that church with nothing. I had her and I had, I couldn't say enough. I had Terry Rowland. Mm-hmm. I called that man every day, twice a day. Maybe I didn't even know what the manual said. Um, he held my hand through that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I look back now, he must have been crazy to have to ever let me do this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, he, uh, he, I had him, and I, I don't know how to stress like the connection that you have with your other pastors on the district. Yeah, those connections are so important. These friendships that we have, that is in the beginning your stability. Hmm. Um, we have to have that. And so anyway, they they helped me in the beginning. They still do, but. Uh, that's how I became the pastor of the church where I was a drug addict for 10 years. Mm. Oh, I was going to say the last thing. I had my testimony. That's all I preached in the beginning. I didn't have an education. All I could tell them it was like the guy when they said, well, how, how are you? How did this happen? They asked him in the Bible, how did this happen? And he says, I don't know how this happened. All I know is once I was blind and now I can see. That's all I know. Yeah. And that's kind of how it was in the beginning. And people would say, Dang, you're getting fat, or what happened to you, or why do you look so good, or what, what's going on? I heard you were a preacher now. What's going on? And I would say, guys, I don't know what happened. All I know is once I was blind, and now I can see. Mm. And that that's really all I've ever had. I just got ordained this year. <laughs> so it was like 12 years later or something. Yeah. So anyway, that's how I became a pastor at Church of the Nazarene. That's don't do beautiful. it, kids. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Tell me more about the kind of backtracking in your story a little bit. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that initial call to preach. What mm. did something specifically happen? Sure. Um, what What was that journey like as a young mm. person? Sure. Um, I was probably 17 years old. I was at the First Baptist Church um, when I first really knew that God wanted something for me in ministry. Mm. And I remember hearing that, and and I was at a youth revival one night, and I remember God saying something to me, like, I want you to do that. I don't remember what was preaching. I just remember seeing the guy, and I couldn't possibly process what that was that night, but uh, the girlfriend that I had in that youth group broke up, or we broke up, and I decided that drugs would be a better path for me than ministry, Mm. and so really what it was, uh, if one had put a spiritual spin on it, I ran from that call as quick as I could. Yeah. I didn't, I, it wasn't like I was scared of it. It's like, I don't want to do that. I'm in high school. I'm going to go have fun. Yeah. You know, and so that life, kind of like that party lifestyle, that's why I broke up with a girlfriend. Yeah. She was a great Christian girl. We had, we had a wonderful youth group here, a great, it was the First Baptist Church at a, still a great church. And I was going to, I could have done great things for the Lord when I was young. And, uh, I could probably say now, you don't have to have a bad testimony to praise the Lord. You, there is a wonderful, wonderful testimony in saying, I never wavered from the time I gave, and I did, but I did. And I ran from the Lord, and I ran from all the call. And it was when I was 23 years old, and I was, uh, I'll save you the, the story. Again, that's too much of my testimony. I want to talk about the call. Um I was charged with embezzlement of funds at Kentucky Fried Chicken in Ada, which 
that simple charge brought me from having a house and a roommate who is my closest friend, still is, by the way, who gave his life to the Lord. Mm. Um, and uh, I had a house. I had friends. I had a job. I was going to get married. I was. I, they were going to promote me at KFC. And all of that was brought down within a split second, and I lost everything overnight. I called my parents from a police station parking lot, and I said, told them the story, what had happened, and why, of course, why it wasn't my fault. And then my dad said to me two words. He said, come home. And he hung up the phone. And I drove home, and I, it is just like out of the Bible and the prodigal son. I, I, I was practicing this speech the whole way, and I was going to tell him why it wasn't all my fault and why it was my fault, but it wasn't my fault, you know. And, yeah. and I was doing this, and I ran into their print shop when I got into town, and I was just saying, I don't. And my dad just grabbed a hold of me, and he hugged me. And I just fell and I moved home and it was less than two weeks later. I was driving back and forth to Ada about every night to see Laura after work. I was working for my parents and one night on the way home, I was uh, between Allen or between Ada and Holdenville. There's a little town called Allen about 20 miles from here and it was pouring down so hard I couldn't see. And all of a sudden this song comes on the radio and it's, uh, it was um, Casting Crowns, Who Am I? And I want to tell you, at that time in my life, I didn't have a job. I didn't have a wife. I didn't have anything that I could offer a wife. I had not a home, but I had two parents that loved me. Mm. And I knew that God had a call on my life. And I just started to weep because this song comes on the radio and says, Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name? Yeah. And in the Bible, you know, especially in the Hebrew, your name speaks of your character. Mm. And I remember uh, my next door neighbor told me when I was strung out on drugs, she told me, she said, son, your daddy gave you a name and it's up to you what you do with it. Mm. And I remember sitting there, I pulled off to the side of the road because I couldn't see and I was crying so hard. And I just remember saying, who am I? And that's, that chorus comes on and says, I'm his. Mm. I belong to him. And he just spoke to me that night and said, are you ready to do this? And I just, I didn't even know what this was at that point. I just remember saying, God, whatever it is you would have me to do, I will do it. I'm in. 100% I'm in. And that developed into that story I told you earlier where I went and I announced that to my mom who then told my, we told my DS and then told my grandpa, who then threw me in just head first. Mm. So that, that was it. And it was never, I was talking to somebody the other day, it's never like a strong urge, like, oh, this is what I want to do. It was like, this is what I've created you to do. Mm. And you can look back over it now. I can look back and see God was preparing me for this the entire time. And at the same time, it was kind of cool, as you can look back and you can see, not only was he preparing you for the call, but he was preparing the call for you. Yeah. And you see these things moving around, and then there's that moment where the DS calls you and says, I want you to pray about something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, I can't believe that happened. You know, I can't believe that that, that was basically kind of how I, how I was called in the ministry, I think. That's amazing. Yeah. So the, the DS calls you, asks you to pray about this thing, you become the pastor of Holdenville. 
tell me what this decade of ministry has been like. First of all, what is Holdenville like? And then what is it like to be the pastor? Let's see. <clears throat> what is Hold Holdenville? I, I would assume I, I'm learning my view of the world is probably very much more limited than I ever thought it was. <laughs> when you when you social media has made me realize we are all so different in so many ways. And I think everybody's starting to realize that the country, I'm speaking mostly of the country, the country hasn't really grown apart. We just never really knew these things about each other. Mm. We used to just be kind of, I never cared that somebody was a Democrat or how they voted or all that. I never found any value in that. I can talk to anybody, literally. But now that we know, I think a lot of it is shock and awe. Like, so um, let me think of the best way to describe it. Uh, there's a book called Hillbilly Elegy. If you ever, it's a great book. Yeah. Um, but basically, everything in rural America, in rural Oklahoma, is kind of that way. Not maybe in the same traditions and the same kind of quirks, but very poor, um, very um, kind, compassionate mm. people. Yeah. Um, drugs are a major issue. Mm. Methamphetamine rules and owns a lot of the town. Mm. There's not, it's almost like every number that you would want to be up is down. Everyone that you want to be down is up. A lot of hunger, a lot of uh, codependency. Um, mm. People who were never strung out on illegal drugs are now getting hooked on legal prescription medication. Yeah. Um, the average age of death for a white woman in our area is about 55. Wow. That is worse than third world countries. Um, that is major part due to the opioid epidemic. Mm. And it's a bad, bad situation. Yeah. And the hard thing is, and I, this doesn't speak, like I said, the people here are kind and compassionate. Those who aren't on drugs are the best of the best. And even those who aren't Christians, they have a Judeo-Christian worldview. So mm -hmm. they are, they share the same values. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they take care of their neighbors. When the western half of Oklahoma is on fire, people take hay and they take feed and they help their buddies out. Those those people didn't do that for through a church. They yeah. did that because they love their neighbors. Yeah. And that's that is the mentality here when you're with if drugs aren't involved. Hmm. But drugs are involved. Yeah. And it gets pretty sticky. And so people people have are very kind and compassionate, but they are also can be very fundamental and very hard nose when it comes to drugs. When somebody steals thirty thousand to fifty thousand dollars worth of cattle in a summer from someone, hmm. they can be a Christian, but they're not gonna take kindly to that. And their first thought is not, Oh bless their heart, they're strung out. Hmm. It's how could they? Yeah. And so drugs are kind of looked at in my mind, I think drugs a lot of times are looked at uh, maybe not by everyone, but by a lot of people as a moral decision. Well, people know that doing drugs is bad mm. and they shouldn't steal stuff. Yeah. So why don't they choose not to do drugs? And so that's kind of the when you lose a family over drugs, people will say, how could they choose drugs over they, their family? And so that's kind of the mentality a lot of times that you take around here. Uh, people take around here. Mm. If you've ever been someone who has been shooting up and crying at the same time because you don't want to be doing it. Mm. Only you can understand why somebody could possibly do this. 
yeah. doesn't justify it. It doesn't justify what they've done, and there still should be consequences for what they've done. But if you can't understand that, you can't look at someone like that. When I see somebody who steals a little girl's bike, a Barbie bike, to ride across town and get dope, I don't see somebody who is making a conscious choice. I see somebody who is in chains. And if you've never understood, I, I used to read that scripture where, what is it, where Jesus is, or they're talking about the man who rips the flesh from his own body and he's running around in the cemetery. Mm. I can tell you that very thing happens here with people who are strung out on meth. Mm. They pick at their face and they pull at the skin from their body. If you want to know what demon possession looks like, and I'm not making it like a, I don't mean to be weird about it, but like it just, that to me is how the devil has a hold on people. Yeah. It's not such a mystical thing. It's more of a, hey, it's a substance. This thing is happening and it's, he's got a grip on folks. Yeah. That's what Holdenville looks like. Now, if you can help somebody, feed somebody, talk to somebody, you might have a chance, if you have a little compassion, to help them. But here's the thing. You're probably going to make a difference in really, if you took one person a year, you might could make a difference, maybe. But there are, it's, I don't remember what you asked me. But what are we supposed to be talking about? What's Holdenville like? It is a drug addicted versus good people type of town. Yeah. And I say versus very literally because there is a start. I mean, it's just a conflict because mainly because of the theft. Hmm. And what makes me kind of sad about it is nobody really cared so much until their stuff started coming up missing. Hmm. I do. I, I do. We don't have anything worth stealing. My, my uh, kids were talking about this, about well, people breaking in because recently somebody was murdered here. Hmm. I've preached a murder, uh, I've preached uh, two murders, no, one murder, and then the other kid was murdered uh, just a few months ago. But um, the kids were asking me about what, should we be scared? And I said, well, number one, we don't owe anybody anything. Number two, we don't have anything worth stealing. Yeah. <laughs> and number three, I'm one of them, hmm. so to speak. Not the people who are doing the killing, but the people who are stealing, these are my people. Yeah. This is who I was. Yeah. They uh, recently, I think, uh, somebody was asking online, is it, do we like that the parsonage is next to the church? And I, and do we think it's necessary? Mm. I said, I hate it. And yes, it's necessary. Like, we, we are a lighthouse to the community. They know they can come. Not only I'll see people sitting on the steps all the time. We are we have a bright light all the way around the church. There is a, a shining light where you need to get safe. You can come there. My porch light will never be off. You can come here and be safe and find refuge. Hmm. And that is true in the literal sense, and it's also true in the figurative sense. As much as it bothers me sometimes that that doorbell rings, people know they can come here and be safe. Yeah. And they would never disrespect us in that way. Hmm. I have left my kids' bikes out. I have left toys out, all that stuff. But not that I don't think that drugs can be dangerous. They sure can. But we have a connection with these people that not a lot of people do. Mm. And when when we've had the privilege of growing up here, so we don't do or don't have to do a lot of reaching out. A lot of people are reaching in, so to speak. Mm. It's a 
if it, I always laugh, I, don't, I said I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing whenever I walk up to a crowd of people and they they're hiding their beer and then one of them says, "Oh, it's just Dane," and I'll be like, "Well, I wait, <laughs> <laughs> I I have standards. What yeah, do you guys think I don't have standards, but no, uh, but we are. I don't want to give too far off track, but I was reading about Father Damien the other day, you know, and he went and worked with a leper colony and he writes these journals and he's talking about those lepers and they and them and those and others, you know, and, and there comes a time where his journals change and he starts talking about we and us Hmm. and our, and he contracted leprosy and he became one of them. Hmm. That is kind of how I see us in this community, not just in the sense that I was a drug addict, but I was born here in this hospital. I was raised here. I am accepted as one of this. I am a Holdenville, Holden villain is what we say. We are, <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of them. And uh, that has allowed for us to be not just a church in the community. It's allowed us to be the community. Hmm. And that makes a huge, huge difference. And that's what Holdenville is like. It's poverty, it's drugs, but it's people that desperately, I think this may be true of any place probably, desperately they need a place to belong. Yeah. That's why people go to the dope house because there's not only drugs there, they know day or night they can come there Mm. any day. That's why people go to the bar. That's why people, but I don't know anywhere else in the world that you have a place to belong from birth to death except the local church Mm. we're we're it and if we don't start opening up our doors to anybody so what they stole something so what well let's get rid of the stuff that's worth stealing let's get you know let's get rid of it let's focus on these folks yeah and i i don't have to say that too much there may be some that are a little hard-nosed about that but once those people start coming once one or two of them start really serving the Lord, what once somebody who was singing in the nightclubs and the bars comes and brings his guitar up on stage and sings for the Lord that first Sunday, it's hard to stop that. Mm-hmm. Hard to stop that when God's moving like that. Yeah. And people just, I don't know. Anyway, that's what Holdenville's like. Come down sometime. You'll be shocked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. Um, talk to me about what life is like as, as the pastor there. I know you kind of, you kind of alluded to a few things, but what happens in a typical day or week or month? What's going on? And what is your, what is your ministry like, um, in a, on a practical day-to-day level? None of it's practical, but (laughs) (laughs) it's all, uh, uh, I do a lot of funerals with this guy, the funeral director, and he said, uh, he writes out an order of schedule, and by my name, he always puts SOP. And for a while, I didn't know what it was, and I said, what does that mean? He put seat of pants. <laughs> he said, we kind of just, we fly by the seat of our pants. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I started not knowing anything, and as I learned some things, I started putting a little bit of structure. I think Jordan Peterson said, even if you have a bad plan, implement it, and then you can fix it along the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what we did in the beginning. I tried to have somewhat of a structure, but as I don't know if you could tell from this podcast or not, but my mind is going a billion miles an hour on 40 different things at the same time. And I've got like six things I want to say. Mm. And so 
there's all there's never more than like 15 minutes I'm exhausted with myself and it's like I cannot imagine my like having to live with me but mm. uh, a typical day-to-day ministry involves a lot it, it will be 100% with people mm. I I am not good my office work all of that gets done within probably one day and maybe a day and a half, and I just can't even hardly sleep until it's done. Yeah. But budgets, paperwork, board meeting agendas, um, any office work at all, except uh, I don't ever include message prep as office work. That's different to me. I mean, more administrative stuff. Yeah. Uh, all of the administrative stuff will happen usually on a Monday because that's when I'm least spiritual. <laughs> I, uh, I do most of that really to prepare for the week. I get my schedule set. If I have any appointments, that sort of thing, uh, which can change day to day. Um, I do all that on a Monday. Mm. And then the rest of the week, I am scheduling and meeting as with with as many people. It doesn't matter if you're in or out of my church. I'm going to have lunch with somebody. I'm going to have a Coke with somebody in the afternoon and hopefully in the morning. If I can meet with two people a day, that will be my goal. Uh, usually it's more than that, depending on what major crisis is going on. Yeah. Uh, because really my schedule is with people, mm. but what interrupts, well, I used to call them interruptions. Now I'm thinking more like, they're more like divine things. I used to really, okay, like say I'm sitting here talking to you. I have a Skype scheduled with Brittany Bullerjack and I'm here and my doorbell rings and somebody is sitting home with no electricity and they need their electric bill paid. I used to think that is an interruption. Mm. Is that an interruption or did my podcast interview interrupt what God had for me at the door, you know, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, uh, but what interrupts my schedule though, I guess you could say is crisis. Mm. Uh, we, we pay electric bills, uh, once a month for one, for, we'll do it for one person once a year and we'll do that once a month. It's in the budget for once a month. And so, but we don't pay part of it and we don't even put a limit on it. We will pay the entire bill for one person if they promise to give me just about an hour to an hour and a half of their time. Mm. Because here's the thing, everybody, and they never mind doing that because everybody who comes to you with those things, they're not just needing an electric bill paid. Something has spun out of control in their life to where they are at this moment. And they are looking desperately for something to hold on to. Mm. They need somebody to tell them that they're going to make it through this somehow and please tell them how, you know, yeah. and you can't always, you can't always do that. Um, that is what interrupts my day. That's, uh, again, so I don't think it's an interruption. You have to tell a lot of people no, just so you can take the time to tell the right people yes, mm. and that you can actually help someone. It, it, we were trying to give so much to everybody, so a little bit to everybody, which was not doing anybody any good. And I got so burnt out. I said, we're going to, Keith Newman said, if do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Yeah. yeah. That's what we're trying to do. So we cut it down to once a month. We'll help one person and we won't just do a little bit or throw money at it. We'll help them. And I, it doesn't work. We probably help about 10 to 12 people a year. Uh, but we don't just pay a bill. I would say maybe 20 to 30% will wind up either coming to church or connected to the church, will at least at the very least will consider me their pastor, which yeah. is all I want. And I don't care if they join or come. I do care, but I, it's not. That's not what's important. They need to feel like they have a place that really cares about them. 
Yeah. So we do that. The primary ministry we have is funerals and weddings. Is that not crazy? I've done in the past 11 years, I've done over 250 funerals and over 130 weddings. Wow. Yeah. So we get, because I grew up here and my dad has roots. My grandparents have roots. We do. And like I said, my grandpa got me into that. Uh, I do more funerals and weddings. Again, we inherited that. If you don't have a church, we're your church. Yeah. You the church for people who don't go to church. I tell people, we're the church for people who don't go to church, and that's reflected by our Sunday morning average. We, we, we don't have a lot. Yeah. But we, we have people that, like I said, if they don't know me as a pastor, they'll know me as Dane. And somebody will say, Dane might know, or Bill, my dad, might know. Uh, and people say, well, who's that? They'll say, you know, that's Meredith's grandson. And so we have roots here. Yeah. The funeral yeah. side of it was for my grandpa. The wedding side of it is from all the yahoos my age that are now getting married and they're having kids and they're starting to look for a place to go. Yeah. Um, that's our primary thing. Um, we absolutely, uh, somebody asked the other day if, uh, if they did weddings for people who um, didn't go to church there or something. And I said, I will do a wedding for, I've done weddings on my front porch. I've done weddings in my parsonage. And they're always like, the question is, should you do premarital? I do if I can, especially if it's members of my church. Yeah. I'll do premarital counseling with them. And it will save you 35 bucks on your marriage license too, if you'll come do it. But if they'll spend, again, if they'll spend an hour to an hour and a half with me, I will sit down and talk to them as practically as I can and do just as good as anybody else probably could with trying to prepare them for what's about to come because you don't really know. And there's not been a young couple yet that's come up to me and says, we are just curious about the theological aspect of marriage. It's like, no, we want to get married now. And it's like, so we go, I'll do, I did one at my picnic table the other day. I'll do one just about anywhere except the only one I ever turned down was this lady asked me if I would do one down at the jail. And I said, I can't. I can't just, I can't process, process that in my mind. <laughs> why, why you would do that or how we're going to possibly talk about this union and then you're going to be dragged out through the, I don't know, anyway. Um, <laughs> so that's the only one I ever turned down, but I will, I'll spend some time and what I talk to them about is what marriage and love really looks like, what a covenant actually is and mm. how attraction is such a small part of that or well, not small I shouldn't say that but is only one part of that yeah and that this what we're about to do here is not to solidify that this is your most important relationship this is to make a promise that even when this doesn't feel like your most important relationship that it <laughs> really is yeah and that you better be committed to this thing even when you don't feel like it hmm. and so even that, and I tell them, because at my wedding, uh, we had the vows, and my grandpa, we always thought he was just being silly. It may have been the early stages of Alzheimer's. We're not sure yet, because he was kind of slipping a little bit. But he was he said in our vows, he made me uh, promise to bring my wife my paycheck every Friday. <laughs> and he made, me, uh, made her promise to rub my feet every night when I got home from work. These are in the actual vows. Like, <laughs> so I'm like... So, but I started looking into that when I was doing a wedding, and I thought, well, what is a vow? Mm. Well, a vow is a promise. Why would we have to promise 
all of these things. And I started thinking after 11 years of being married, it's because sometimes we don't feel like doing these things. Mm. And so that's what I do. And that's a very big ministry. And, you know, not everybody makes it. And there's a lot of divorce, as we know. It's, by the way, it's not nearly as bad as people talk about on the percentage side, but because a lot of people just don't look at marriage the same way. But I, I think that we really make a difference in, in just preparing them for there's going to be a time. I think it's probably, I always use like probably a verse from the runaway bride or something. <laughs> so like, there's a time where one of you or both of you are going to want to get out of this thing. Mm. And then I'll just say, it's in those times. My wife has a book called Choosing to Stay When You Have Every Reason to Leave. Mm. That if I can just sit down with couples for a little bit, that's the strength. That's going to be the future of this, of rural America. We need moms and dads to raise kids and to love their kids. And I mean, it's not a big secret and I could get spiritual with that. But we need stability. We mm. need homes stability. We need people, communities that love and care about the people next door to them. And they can't do that if they don't even know how to love and care about the people that are right here in front of them. Yeah. And uh, anyway, that, that's it. Uh, I don't remember what we we're talking about. <laughs> no, I love Literally. it. We were just talking about what yeah. it's like to be the pastor and, and what okay. kinds of things yeah. you end up doing. Th that would be the weddings. And then the funerals, the, the funeral thing, you get to be with people when they are the most vulnerable they will ever be. Mm -hmm. And we don't limit what music you play. I don't ask. And plus now, uh, in the past five years, if I do your funeral and you don't have a church, our church will do the funeral dinner for you, completely for your family if you want it. Wow. And you can meet at our church and there's no charge. Um, there's just people don't have money and this isn't a money making thing. Um, you get to, I have had people, uh, like I said, I preached the funeral for a boy who was murdered for, by the way, for $400 is why they beat him to death. $400. Oh. That's how much his life was worth to these people. Oh. Anyway, the, I preached his funeral. His family had never stepped foot in a church and probably never would have ever. And they asked me if they could play this certain song. And I said, absolutely. Yes. And I promise you this, that somebody in that church would have died if she had heard this song. It wasn't didn't have cuss words, nothing like that. But these people were bouncing their hands and I mean, just it was, I mean, I got up there and didn't even know what to say afterwards. But uh, they told me what they told me is they said it's the edited version. And I said, oh, OK, sure. Well, yeah, it was edited, <laughs> but, but it was still a rap song and it was shocking. But afterwards, I got to get up and I got to talk to them and I got to be real with them about what does it mean? What does this mean for us? Mm -hmm. He is in a better place now. He doesn't ever have to worry about this crap again. But what are we going to do? Yeah. Do we want our buddy to have? And so I got to talk to him. They'll never listen to a preacher talk to them about the Lord. Yeah. They're never going to listen to that. But they got to hear it that day. They got to hear that their life was worth more than this, that yeah. someone loved them enough to die for them and that, that he cares about who they are and, and, and what they become. And he, and he has a purpose and plan for their life. And if you, and again, this is, I don't have come to Jesus meeting at funerals. I celebrate the life of the individual, but the people that are there, 
they need to leave there knowing not that they should be scared to die, but that they have a God who wants them to live. Mm-hmm. They have somebody who loves them. They are worth so much more than what what what's going on in their life. So that's that's what I would say is is that my typical day is with the community. I absolutely hate sitting in the office, and I, I that sermon prep for me. I do spend early mornings. I spend at least the first couple few hours of the day trying to work on my message because uh, it helps set my heart right. And also, when I'm preparing my message, if I start out the day that way, I'm looking throughout the day. I'm looking for things that kind of go along with it. And by the time I get to Sunday, hopefully most of the illustrations and things I'm going to use aren't going to come from a dusty old book. They're going to come from, hey, you know, I was talking with someone the other day. Or uh, Regis Philbin used to tell Jimmy Fallon, he said when he first took over, he said, you need to go out at night because you're going to need something to talk about the next day. You know, he said, <laughs> uh, he said you, you need to, to know, uh, you need to have some material. And so I try to stay up. I, I quit watching cable news, which helped me a lot. Mm. <laughs> that was just dominating my entire worldview. It's like, oh my gosh, politi- politics are just driving me nuts. So now I just drive your husband nuts with politics. And then, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, that's my typical day in the Church of the Nazarene in Holdenville. Um, I do a lot of work from home in, uh, in the afternoons and stuff. And I like to do that too because there's a lot of ladies that need help or that need someone to talk to and my wife is here and on deck she's so awesome so um they they told me when i first started they said you never counsel a woman with the door closed and i thought why would i ever counsel with a woman period what would i ever (laughs) what would i have to tell yeah ladies i've got it all figured out over here let me tell you um i have never been a lady so i like to if they if it's anything more than spiritual guidance so to speak and even if it is, I at least will have my wife there, if not just talking to him one on one. It's like, yeah. hey, let me let me at least get somebody who may understand you a little better, because it uh, turns out I may not know ladies as well as I thought I did. When sure. I first, <laughs> but anyway, so that's what I do now. Well, and you're blessed to have a wife that um, is so involved in, in ministry and loves to be a part of what's happening there. Yeah. You know, and I would say this, too not just in ministry, but uh, she is, we're a team. Yeah. Hang on, she's about to come through the door here in two seconds probably. Um, but uh, we are a, not just in ministry, like she's not, I, can, I don't do anything without her. Yeah. Like we, we do everything together. So I yeah. can't imagine her not being a part of it. Anyway, yeah. Okay, let me ask you this. Okay. Imagine a scenario in which a you know, early 20-something young person just graduated from a Nazarene institution and they've been called to a church like Holdenville and they've never lived there. They don't have your credentials, let's say, as a person who grew up there. How? What advice might you give to that young person who is becoming a senior pastor for the first time in a new place, in a small town, what, where do they even start? What would you What would you tell that person? Learn. Learn not only to listen. Learn to be the last to speak. 
learn and you could take that in the setting of a board meeting of a leadership team or just the context of a community take a very long time before you ever come with any ideas or advice or how well you think you've got it figured out if you have any experience at all you don't have any with this community or this church yeah and there are people that have given their blood sweat and tears to make it whatever it is and i'm not saying that it is a good thing or what you want it to be or that it's perfect yeah but it is at least something that someone has given their time and and efforts to Mm. so take some time to learn not only what they're doing take some time to learn why they're doing it Mm. and take some time to find out why it's important to the people that may that it's important to yeah why why this is silly little things why do we meet at this time why do we have these parties why in our church it's the little traditions of why do we fold the communion clause that way it, it's not spiritual you know it's not it's not spiritual at all it's it's uh but just because something is sacred doesn't mean it's not special mm. and and for us those are those little traditions and things and stuff things that are kind of quirky and unique to us that they bind us together. Mm. Um, we fold those communion cloths that way because Sister Bowers made them by hand. She sewed them by hand and she used to fold them that way. Mm. And they meant something to her. And now when we take communion, we're coming to the table, not just with the Lord, but we're remembering Sister Bowers and all those that have gone before us. And what we are now is we're part of all of that. And all of those little things kind of bind us together. So I would say my best advice is take some time to get to know or to learn to be the last to speak. Mm. Because if I had had it to do, and I was from here, by the way, yeah. if I would have taken more time to do that, I can think of at least four important relationships in my life, maybe five, I would say probably four, that would not have been damaged by callously and quickly trying to put something new in place Mm. because I could see what I wanted to do and I I had a good idea of what God wanted me to do. So why is that not good enough? You hired me, you know, and I really hurt a couple of people's feelings that I wish I could take back. Uh, Do we want to be right or do we want to be together? And I think if you learn some, some, I guess I think John Wesley said, seek more to do good than to be right. Mm. That's kind of what we sh- I wish I would have done. If I would have taken some time to know how important something was to someone and why, it would help me understand it better before I changed it. And it's not that it doesn't need to be changed. Right now we're talking about changing our fellowship hall because we need more space. We're outgrowing it and it needs to be updated. Plus we need uh, room for the children's church to grow. Mm. And so the the initial thing would be for anybody to come in would be to say, knock the old one down, build new right there in that space. Boom, we're done. But now the fact that my grandpa helped put those bricks in place, that place isn't sacred, but it is special. That doesn't mean it doesn't need to come down. Mm. But that means that I'm going to take time to think about why it should come down. Is it something that is important for a reason? Is it something I'm holding on to for my own good? Or does it really mean something yeah. in and of itself? So I would say that if you're going in, take some time, 
because I, I feel like this is with the social media right now. We're all just observing each other like a bunch of monkeys in a cage. Like we're just like <laughs> we're like we don't really understand. If you go in from the outside and you're going into a new place, you don't understand the people and you're looking and you're kind of trying to figure things out. Be quick to listen and slow to speak and so very slow to get angry mm. <laughs> because that's what it is. And James talks all about it. The tongue, it, there's a word in the Bible. It's the most disgusting word in the English language. I hate it. It's called murmur. It just sounds like murmur, 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 murmur. That will kill a church. Mm. But if you've got a pastor who is loved and respected going in, then if he'll be humble and ask more questions than he tries to give advice, you give him three, if in a rural community, you give him a couple of years and he'll own this town. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just not hard. Uh, you just have to learn to listen. Yeah. And I am horrible. At, I've been horrible about that. I'm learning more now. Um, anyway, I'll stop talking now. <laughs> no, it's great. It's so wise. Yeah. Um, okay, so... The last question I ask everybody is kind of a zoomed out big picture. Mm-hmm. What gives you hope for the future of the Church of the Nazarene? Oh, easy answer is Jesus. Um, he is our hope. Yeah. That's the easy. That's the preacher answer, though. Um, uh, spiritually speaking, our greatest hope is if we get our focus on back on Jesus. Not back on Jesus. If we keep our focus on Jesus. Yeah. I, if we're talking meta, if we're talking big, denominationally speaking, uh, our, our hope, I think, is in the General Assembly. Honestly, um, if you're talking worldwide hope uh, to keep our denomination together, um, the Assembly is really the only thing that does that. Uh, I don't think that we have, um, I don't think we, I'm speaking to myself really, I don't have the ability to understand the needs of Africa and the needs in South America and the needs of Argentina. I don't, I need, I need those people from there to come and gather and tell me and to talk to me and to say, are we on track here? Um, Now, theologically speaking, when we come together for those things, they're very hard because our cultures can be so very different. But I think the thing is, I think that keeps our, our, there's, there's, there's the shifting winds of the culture, I call it. The shifting winds where things are back and forth and, and ideas and things. That, and we live now in a day where it's just like we're in a whirlwind of change. Mm. And that's the culture. And, and I know that, that maybe Internet kind of makes it feel like it's faster than it ever has been maybe because technology is so much more. It's really always been this way. Ideas have shifted back and forth for so long. But there's also underneath those shifting winds, there's the ocean current that drives it. That is kind of like me, uh, what I think of as, as the the church or the, the assembly, I guess you could call it. Um, but when if we can keep a steady current mm. of, of change and development and growth, that does not change with the shifting winds of the culture. Um, it's important that we have a steady movement rather than something that is so fast we can't even wrap our minds around it um that is the meta picture the hope in the 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 smaller picture is it's the local church yeah you know there is not 
you and I may be light years of difference in how we do things in a metro versus an, a, a, a rural church. Mm. But what we do is the exact same. Yeah. What we want so badly is for people to know that we care. Mm. And we want people to know that we care because we want them to know that Jesus cares even more than that. Like there's no way we could even show you. We pay your electric bill because well, we don't want you to be cold in the winter. We don't want you to be hot in the summer. But we want you to know that there is a God out there that loves you and you are precious and you are worth more. And we we can't do that if we don't know you. Hmm. And so there's not a lot of people that are beating down the door to get in the church. <laughs> so you go to where they are and you love them. Yeah, yeah. And you do your best to draw them to you. That is the hope in the local church is I've never met a Nazarene yet, but that's not their heart. They doesn't matter whether they're from Africa or they're from America or wherever their heart is for people to know that God cares. Mm. And we believe that these relationships change one another. And so that my hope in the, the, the local church is, is loving people is loving is being community where you are. Uh, the meta picture, our district assemblies, our general assemblies, the times of togetherness in person, those conferences, all these things, those things are important because I feel like that the online gives us the, uh, the maybe makes us feel like we're connected, but it, this is going to sound really so very so uneducated, but uh, it doesn't really take the place of being in the same room with people. Oh, yeah. Like, can I gather somewhere? I did a couple of online things with uh, uh, my Mormon friend. Uh, he plants churches all over the United States for uh, the, um, the Community of Christ Church. Mm. And he said, come check out what we're doing online. They do it better than anybody, I will say. Like, mm. they, they have so many cool little things that they do that make you feel like you're really part of the group. And they have, like, a meetup, but it's just online. Yeah. Uh, but still at the end of it, I want to give somebody a hug. And I want to sit down and I want, I, I would really wish we could just leave cell phones out. You know, throw your cell phone in a bucket when we get there and let's just talk. We started doing that when we go out with friends. My wife will keep her work phone in her purse for emergencies leave our cell phones at home yeah and not having them on the table changes everything yeah. we just hang out and so those times of togetherness are very very important um they're very important not just for for the church as a whole but those new pastors you're talking about starting out when you're in rural america by yourself and all you can see is hay fields for miles and miles you need to know that you're not alone out there. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think that is we, we have pastors that leave so soon. They need to know that they have a district that loves them. They have other pastors that are they can relate to that love them. Uh, they have a they have people that are out there that have been through what they've been through that are currently going through what they're going through now. And they're not alone and they're not crazy. They say if a person doesn't have at least one person they can relate to, they'll lose their mind. Mm. They need to know. And I think that's really the hope because you're putting a lot on your pastor. And that that relationship, his relationship to the assemblies and to the district and to other young pastors his age and, and her age, they're, they're going to they're going to need somebody 
to not only relate to, but who can provide wisdom to them. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would think is the hope of our, the future. Now that could all be way off. I'm not as smart and I'm not nearly as smart as I thought I once was. Oh no, I think it's perfect. (laughs) Thank you so much. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you so much for, for doing what you do and for answering the call that God's placed on your life. Uh, Man, I, I am humbled and honored and, not only do I love doing this, there's not anything else I could do. Mm. Trust me, because five years ago I would have done it. But now <laughs> uh, things are great. I'm honored. And thank you for what you do. Thank you so much for you and for you, not really just that, but you for you and Aaron, who you are, because you guys are just wonderful people. Oh, well, we, we appreciate you, Dane. Thanks for oh, coming I, on the show. I love you guys. Hey. This is the part of the show where we bring you a story from the TNL podcast voicemail. See, we can never possibly interview every young pastor in the Church of the Nazarene, so we made a way that you can get involved and tell us the story of your Nazarene life. For more information about leaving us a voicemail, check out thisnazlife.com slash contact. Today's story is from Alex Harms in Napa, California. Hi, my name is Alex Harms, and I'm on staff at Living Vine Church in Napa, California. Um, It's actually one of my favorite stories to tell of how I ended up in the Nazarene Church because it is completely random. They happened to be the church when I was in middle school that had the most fun. I remember going and thinking, well, I don't really understand this whole Jesus thing, but I will put up with singing a couple songs and listening to some guy talk for 15 minutes if it means ice cream sandwiches and ping pong. Uh, I really loved going to all the events as part of the youth. And I I probably went to church for quite a few years before I even realized that I was a Christian. But um, becoming a part of the Nazarene Church and understanding now a little bit more about what we believe and who we are, um, I'm so glad that I just stumbled across Nazarendom. Um, there was a church across the street that also had a pretty great youth program. And every every year uh, around Halloween, they would do this really extravagant, um, like, scare house. And now I understand that they were trying to scare the, the high school students into going to church and scare them into not wanting to go to hell. So it was just like seven layers of hell, people in scary costumes. And um, I actually went a couple of times because they raffled off a car. Like if you bought a ticket to go to the scare house, you would be in the drawing for a used car. And every every kid in the entire high school, which was thousands and thousands of people, um, would go to this haunted house and be hopefully scared into going to church And in retrospect, I'm so glad that I ended up at the Nazarene Church, even on just, you know, some random turn of events, which I now get to call Provenient Grace, because I'm pretty sure that had I ended up going because I was scared, I would have an understanding of God that is so different from who I know God to be now. And I probably wouldn't have stayed in the church for very much longer and would have been another one of those statistics of students leaving the church once they get to college. So I'm super grateful for 
the community that I found at the Nazarene Church that I started going to in high school, uh, the friends I've got to keep from there, and just the the kind of theology that was ingrained in me from the beginning has shaped not only my ministry now, but who I am as a person and how I think about the next generation of people in the church. I ended up in the Nazarene Church because of nice people and ping pong and pervenient grace. And now um, that just is in my ministry to whoever I'm around that it doesn't have to be us working really hard, but you know, God working through us and us just being like Jesus and us sticking to our roots and and to love. Um, now that I have some of the words to describe it, my story of how I ended up in the Nazarene Church and God's grace in my world um, is just one of my favorite stories to talk about because I went from being this punk kid who, you know, sharpied on, like, their knockoff converse and um, really just cared about going to Worlds of Fun or, you know, um, all the games that we would play to being open to letting God work in my world and transform my understanding of family and community. Um, Shout out to the middle of nowhere, Kansas, and God City Church of the Nazarene. But, um, that's where I found the Nazarene Church and that's where I found Jesus and, uh, I'm really happy to share that with other young pastors and, and other people going through ministry who maybe don't share the same experience. But to all of the youth pastors out there, we're grateful for you and we love you and thanks for doing what you do. Bye y'all.